So last week, uh, just a recap, we explored the first sign in John's gospel. And throughout Lent, we're going to be diving into these things we'll call signs of salvation. And this the, the sign that we explored last week came from John 2. It says it was Jesus' first sign. It happened in a place called Cana, and it happened at a wedding feast. If we, if we remember well, the wine ran out, and Jesus' mom looked to him, elbowed him in the ribs, and said, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> Jesus, Jesus asked the servants to fill these six giant stone jars, and voila, hundred and 50 or so gallons of the choicest wine, Jesus' first sign in Cana. In the, in the couple chapters since then, we, we've also seen some pretty major events, and I, w- I would encourage you throughout this series, you'll get the most if, if you're dwelling on these signs, but also if you're reading in between them too. Because right after that wedding feast, Jesus goes and he clears the temple in, in this dramatic scene. Or uh, after that, he encounters Nicodemus, and this is everyone's favorite verse, John 3, 16, uh, that God so loved the world, he gave his only son. But before that, he, he is telling Nicodemus, this Pharisee official, this major uh, kind of conservative religious leader that he needs to be born again, and Nicodemus can't even, can't even fathom. Uh, after that, uh, in... In John 4, before our passage this morning, Jesus encounters a Samaritan woman at a well, and they have a a lively conversation about worship and and truth. Now we finally arrive back at Cana. And last week, those of you who are here, we joked a little bit about that because it was, even for Lent, a really joyous and kind of absurdly abundant sign and miracle and some of the joke was a little on me and that's a hazard of having your own mother in your congregation but I think this passage this week doesn't seem like something really to joke with because there's a life in the balance before there was a party in the balance now there's a life and it's a it's a child's life um as I I was a I was digging into this and trying to explore the, po- the plot line. It felt so familiar, but I couldn't quite figure out why. And then one of the commentators I found uh, put these two stories up against each other. And again, this, these are like kind of little pro tips spring- sprinkled throughout. It says that they arrived back at Cana, and, and Cana doesn't show up a whole lot. So when John's talking about Cana, he's trying to get our attention. And so if you put these two stories up next to each other, you see how aligned they are, how this plot line runs through pretty similar in these first two signs. These are also the the only two named signs. First, uh, Jesus' mother reports that they're out of wine. In our story today, the official comes to Jesus with a request. Jesus kind of rebuffs, and that was funny last week. It's not funny when a dad is begging someone to save his son, and Jesus gives him a line about not believing unless he sees something. But then the requester persists, right, in both of these cases. And then Jesus uh, goes, goes forward with the solution. Fill the jars. Go. Your son will live. The servants obey Jesus, and the man obeys Jesus. The, the servants somehow are in on this secret, or at least in on the solution, and it ends with belief. 
So again, as you're reading, there's, there's always way more going on under the surface of just what we're reading. And, and I, I hope throughout the season we'll read well and start to become more and more attentive to these things. But as we said, none of that really resolves this tension of, of why, why Jesus denies this man up front. This doesn't seem funny. It seems like surely any savior worth his salt would be falling all over himself to make this happen. But in our story, there's this hesitation or this change. How could Jesus look in a grown man's eyes who's begging for the life of his child and talk about, like, make an object lesson? Unless someone sees miraculous signs and wonders, you won't believe. I think many of us have been in this man's position, maybe not with a child, but where we're begging God for action and hearing silence. Or maybe we go to someone for like spiritual counsel with the same request and we get an explanation (laughs) and that doesn't feel great. Perhaps we get feedback opposite of what we're praying. We're out here crying out like the psalmist in in you know, Psalm 5, listen to my words, Lord, consider my lament, hear my cry for help, my King and my God. It's for you, I pray. By the way, that's also Psalm 61, 143, 39, 142, 86, on and on. This is a persistent theme that we cry out for God. But on Jesus' side of this, Perhaps Jesus is a little weary. He's developed a little bit of local celebrity for doing really cool things like turning water to wine. Maybe now he's the life of the party and that kind of bugs him because it's distracting. He's a little weary of this reputation that he's gained to be able to do a party trick or even be a lifeline to this man and never hear from people again. I kind of get that also. But then without skipping a beat, this man asks Jesus to come with him and calls him Lord. <laughs> I think that's like a major pivot point in this story. And he says, Lord, come with me and heal my son. This royal official, and that's not a small detail either, who is not in the habit of calling too many people Lord. This guy is high up. He's not going to call too many people Lord. Was begging Jesus to come with him. I wonder if it's at this point that there's a little glimmer in Jesus' eye, like a little hint of recognition. You see, Lord opens up a window for the man's willingness to trust Jesus. Like, this is the man paying up front with his faith, like before anything happens, calling him Lord. There's a lot of speculation as to whether or not this man was a Jew and, and that uh, makes a little bit of a difference, but only somewhat. If, if he was a Jew, this honorific title of Lord, uh, if, if a Jew calls someone besides God Lord, it's idolatry, right? <laughs> Lord was, was their Lord God. They didn't even say the name of God, but only kind of circumlocuted it with Lord. But if this man was, was not a Jew, still Lord is a little bit of a scandal, because Lord was Caesar, so calling Jesus Lord amounted to treason. So it was, it was either idolatry or treason or the truth that this man called Jesus Lord. Don't discount how important 
and costly these words are and, and why the whole story turns on them. The illness of this man's child brought him into an encounter with Jesus. Regardless of the result, the result hadn't happened. But he's encountered Jesus and he's encountered him as Lord, one with authority, one with strength, one who could actually do something. I don't know how much we'll talk about it tonight at the event, but I've seen this sort of phenomenon and this sort of faith happen in my friend Bob. And Bob is a professional musician in a really big band called the Avid Brothers. And probably at the height of, of their uh, kind of jumping into success, his young daughter um, started having seizures and, and was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And I've heard Bob talk about this, and the reason I say I don't know how much we'll talk about this tonight is because I think he's eager not to talk about himself, so I'll talk about him here without him. But Bob's story is, is really, really remarkable in that um, Hallie, in like all of her pain and, and, and Bob in uncertainty, and Bob's request probably sounded a lot like this man, Lord, heal my daughter, heal this child of mine, at the end of himself, reignited this new faith and this vibrancy and this dependence in Bob that I don't think he knew where it came from and, and, and happened before Hallie was well. And, and she's pretty well now as far as that goes. And, and so I, I definitely see this kind of pattern. And I was watching the, this movie, um, a documentary that's on HBO right now called May It Last, and it's about the Avid Brothers, and it talks a little bit about this. It doesn't show all of the like sleepless nights when Bob was like playing. The, his best way of lamenting is to play the violin. Um, he's normally a bassist of, of lamenting deep into the night, playing the violin, praying and hoping for Hallie. It doesn't show those things, but it does show one of the brothers on this part, and I think it's some, the most like intense and impactful moment in the whole documentary when one of the brothers who's who are like the face of this band and out front, uh, just looks into the camera and, and says, when Hallie got sick, we all had to figure out if we believed in God on this documentary. When Hallie got sick, not when Hallie got well, you can see how, in, in some sense, how front-loaded it is, uh, our faith, um, and, and the kind of questions that it brings to us. Some people run <laughs> when things get, get bad because they can't conceive of how good God could let these things happen. But the offer for us is to run to God <laughs> when these things happen. So then, in our story, we, we find this faith happens before the result. Faith is also not driving the result, but nor is it driven by what is gonna happen. And then in our story, Jesus unleashes the word. <laughs> It's through this word that God created. We've been talking about this in our baptism class. Let there be. Let there be light. Let there be land. Let there be sky. Let there be birds and creatures. Let there be. Let there be. And then this, this theme changes to let us make. Let us make God in our own image. And all the while basking in this chorus, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is very good. And then God rests in the goodness. This is, of course, also the way that John 
starts the gospel in the first place. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was with God in the beginning. Everything came into being through the Word, and without the Word, nothing came into being. What came into being through the Word was life, and the life was the light for all peoples. The word of life and light for all people. If we slip down a few verses in this cosmic praise chorus, then became flesh and made it his home among us. Here we might start to get to Jesus' concern that this miraculous eye candy, no matter how vital, might get in the way of hearing and receiving a word because when our eyes are so overwhelmed with something, it distracts from our ears and how we receive a word is with, always with our ears. In our age of omnipresent screens and media, maybe we'd do well to hear this like warning and heed it. If we want to focus on the word, we need to narrow some of our distractions. I think that's maybe a little, why, a little reason why in both of these stories, it's the servants in both of the stories that have a certain privileged position, even though their position in society is not at all privileged, they have a certain privileged position to receive Jesus' word and to see its effect. No one else sees it. Like when those, like, you can kind of wonder in those stone jars with water to wine, there had to be a moment or a series of a couple minutes where you could see, that, see it change. No one, that's not what the story says. No one saw it. But the servant, especially the servant sticking the ladle in and tasting, saw the effect and knew where that wine came from. That's what the story says. Or in, or in our story today, it says this man goes back home after Jesus sends him. And it's the servant that reports the time and what happened. And the man remembers that that's the exact time that Jesus said, go, your son lives. It's the servants that have this privileged position. The servant that's not even in an earshot of Jesus who knows exactly when the boy's fever left and is able to report it to relieve father. Maybe this position of a servant whose job and livelihood depends on taking orders have better ears to hear the word. That should be challenging to us. We spend most of our time, like most of our lives, trying to be promoted from servant. <laughs> Perhaps it's these sign stories that were being pointed towards the reality that hearing is more important to seeing and the best way to learn how to hear is to practice being a servant, to find someone to serve, to be at the beck and call of others to listen and serve Jesus. So I think with that listening, we also can begin to see a little bit of how faith or belief or trust and obedience are tied together. On our, on our prayer card this week with that little boy's face that's, that Bethy did such a good job on, she, um, she, so much prayer went into the production of those cards and so much time and scripture for her and and with each card, she had kind of almost in Lectio Divina style, like a word or a phrase that stuck out. And for this one, with this, uh, with this child, it was believe. You can see how key that is. How faith and obedience are tied together. So often they're separated from us. Like, I think we, we do this when we talk about grace a lot. 
We, we want God's grace to be so powerful and so irresistible that we try to remove the, the kind of obedience that it requires of us, even as it gives us all, it, all that it asks, it also provides. We, we find in this passage, one commentator says that Jesus dramatizes the dynamics of grace. That what is needed by humans is always initiated by God. What is needed is always initiated. God initiates, but we participate. Faith in obedience. Because the proper response to grace is always some like solid and indistinguishable combination of these two things. We trust in who Jesus is and what Jesus says, whether or not it makes sense or whether or not that's filling jars with water or going home to your dying son without like, a noticeable intervention. Like we have some people in the medical field here that would not go over very well if you sent like a grieving mom or dad and just said, go, your son's going to be okay. <laughs> they want to see you work on their child. I think that's what this man wanted, but he had this, this faith to, to believe that and then to go and to follow. Obedience is, is a little bit and, and I hesitate to say this because I'm a parent and I wield this power with my kids. Obedience is a little bit of just doing because so-and-so says so. <laughs> doing because Jesus says so. I know, I know my kids hate to hear that. Why? Because I said so. Well, I think we hate, to, we hate to hear that, even if we don't hear that. We hate that idea of it being out of our control and us not seeing the... the, the benefit or the consequences of it. But I think faith in obedience also means really concrete things for us. Like faith in obedience means living peaceably and gently and without fear in our world. Like in this time, in this in-between time, that as we push towards like a world of peace. That means that we live like sword to plowshare, like assault rifle to pruning hook, future, we live that now. That's what it means to have faith and to be obedient, that, that things change. Faith and obedience means that we have fidelity in our relationships. That means a trusting, sacred, and content singleness. That means a trusting, sacred, and content marriage. And that takes a heck of a lot of faith and a heck of a lot of obedience. Faith and obedience means working with all your heart as unto the Lord, that's Colossians 3, even if you're unemployed <laughs> or even if you're underemployed or not happy, even if you're retired or even if you're in this season of preparation for this thing, this vocation, this thing that feels far off, it takes a lot of faith and it takes a lot of obedience to keep doing those small things that you don't know what the result is going to be. And faith and obedience also means having the word of life on your mouth and in your heart, speaking and embodying good news of Jesus in spaces to which you're uniquely called. We have so many people in this room that are in, embedded in places in Durham, in the Triangle and beyond, that have like, relationships that are so unique that like, I couldn't have the same relationship that many of you have with different people. And it means embodying and speaking that good news, that gospel, that word of life 
even when, and even in these spaces where people might not be welcoming to that word, that takes so much trust to put yourself out there. It takes so much obedience to keep doing that, even if you feel some rejection. I think it means that both Cana stories end with this sort of belief. Mary's initial request ends with the disciples' belief. It says the disciples saw this sign and they believed. The official's request ends with his son's life being saved. So that's really concrete. But then also, he and his whole household believed, had faith, trusted into Jesus. Again, that, uh, the way John talks about believing in Jesus, it's, it's this believing into Jesus, this intimacy, this deepness, this rich relationship and trust. I think we also might even see like this, this sign is kind of a long runway up to this post-resurrection appearance to Jesus. And I think we can still talk about resurrection in Lent, but it feels really far off. But in, uh, later in John's Gospel, we all know the story about Jesus, the resurrected Jesus appearing to Thomas. And th- Thomas is, I think, unfairly called Doubting Thomas in tradition. But he shows up to Thomas, and Thomas has his doubts. Perhaps you're feeling like Thomas most of the time. So John 20 says, even though the doors were locked, Jesus entered and stood among them. you think that would be enough for Thomas. He says, peace be with you. And then Thomas says, and then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. Look at my hands. Put your hand into my side. No more unbelief. Believe. And Thomas responded to Jesus, my Lord and my God. Jesus replies, do you believe because you see me? Happy are those who don't see and yet believe. Jesus gives this beatitude. Happy are those who don't see and yet believe. Perhaps it's the whole point to both of these signs in Cana. Both occur kind of off to the side, out of the, pit, out of the picture. And no one really witnesses the change, but both kind of change everything, especially for the disciples, especially for that man's household, especially for that little boy. For Thomas's mind to be changed, Jesus needed to pull him in, to let him feel his wounds, to let him participate in the salvation that happened right out in the open, and no one recognized it as salvation. It couldn't have been seen. Thomas had been part of all these conversations about how the Son of Man needed to suffer in order to save, but his mind couldn't compute what he'd seen on that hill of Calvary. He couldn't He couldn't look at it and say, this is that. To him, it looked like a failure, not salvation. In Jesus' grace, he he gave him something tangible. He gave him some some vision. But these signs are trying to prepare us to not need that because he he knew there would be a time when we wouldn't have that benefit. Lastly, those words, they show up three times and you... when something shows up three times, you have to be aware of it. These words, your son lives. And Jesus says, go, your son lives. I think there's some sort of re- like rewind and a preview. 
Like they were rewind to like the prophet Isaiah or uh, Elijah stooped over a little boy breathing into him, giving him new life and then saying to the boy's parents, your son lives. But I think they're also a preview, a sign pointing beyond and ahead. As Jesus tells this man, go, your son lives. I think it kind of reverberates. We, we hear it in that garden, that grave garden in John 20 that we'll celebrate here in, on April uh, 1st. Isn't it great? It's April Fool's Day. It's Easter this year. When he says to Mary, go to my brothers and sisters and tell them I'm going up to my father and your father, to my God and your God. In short, go, the son lives. Like, it, it, it's, so, it's so brilliant that we get these these kind of hints and these little like side angles at what Jesus is doing and what Jesus is working. So faith comes by hearing and, and obedience amplifies. Go. It amplifies that word into the world. That Jesus is making all things new. That the word has come to bring life and light to all people. That the son lives and is bringing life to many sons and daughters who also might live in him. Will you guys pray with me? Father, we thank you for this story and we thank you for the versions of this story in each of our lives in which we're, we're given a dire situation and it forces us to come to you I wish that it didn't take those things. On those encounters, let us, like this man, encounter you. Pay our faith up front because you're trustworthy. Let that faith um, bring us into um, a relationship of obedience that we might hear your word and listen to it and do it. As James said, faith without works is dead. You've said over and over that your son lives, that we live. So let us live obedient lives animated by this spirit and, and believing more and more deeply into Jesus. And pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.